This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back uh, once again to another episode of the Educated Home Buyer Live. This past week, not really a lot of change in the data other than the the idea that we have a slowing economy, Josh. A lot of the the, the numbers that are being reported with retail sales, with you know housing starts, housing permits, everything is just kind of sh- more or less sh- showing a slowing overall. Um, and with that, we haven't really seen a lot of news um, that has helped the housing market and or really hurt the housing market with that said. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about some changes here coming to the show, but Josh, you know, what's happening in your side, interest rates, that sort of thing this past week? Well, we'll, we'll get to that in the charts, but not a whole lot. Uh, we've talked about really other than two little periods of time where rates tried to break out to the high side and go back uh, to the high rates we saw late last year. Um, we've been in a very narrow range, about a quarter to maybe at the high end, half percent range from top to bottom. And we're just chopping from top to bottom of the range, top to bottom of the range. And right now, the 10-year treasury is about at the top of that range. So we'll see um, what happens tomorrow. Uh, The next day, there's not a lot of news coming down the pike here for us to trade off of. But my expectation would be that we will drift down towards the bottom of the range. We are waiting for some big movement in data uh, to cause us to break out of the range. I don't see a breakout to the high side. Uh, I'm sure there's some scenarios where we could paint where that would happen. I, I think they're far less likely than a breakout to the low side in interest rates, but could be another two, three, four, five weeks. Um, something like another uh, CPI read, a, a better, weaker CPI read. Uh, the next Fed meeting, we actually, this last one was a day before the CPI announcement. The next mm-hmm. one is the day after the CPI yep. uh, announcement. You know, we had some silliness this week. We have uh, Fed speakers out talking about how they're still inclined to continue hiking rates. It's absolutely insane, absolutely out of touch with reality, Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in another month of data. And I guess the other thing, Jeb, that's kind of pressuring interest rates or keeping us to the high end of the range right now is supply. The three or four banks that did get taken over, that did have their assets shifted uh, to other banks or to the treasury, those assets are being liquidated. So there is more supply of bonds, both treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities in the market than what we would normally see. So that's giving us a little bit of pressure, but we're still in the big picture. Nothing has happened. We're in the range that we've been in for the last six months. Awesome. And we're going to dive into more of that in the charts here in just a minute, but I want to talk about some changes coming to the show. Um, one thing I want to point out though, while we're having this conversation is under Josh's name, under my name is our YouTube handle, right? Most, if you guys are here, you know, my YouTube handle, um, Josh's can be found there. If you're looking for Josh, if you're looking for the educated homebuyer podcast, which we don't talk about a lot on here, uh, but it's a separate channel, uh, getting towards, a thousand subscribers and that handle is at the educated home buyer. So at the educated home buyer, we'll get you to that channel, different information, different content, different conversations than what we're having on here. So if you're inclined, go check it out. Um, we would be grateful for that, but changes coming to the show. So we have been doing two hour episodes for the last two years or so. Uh, We are now going to go to a one hour episode. It's going to be five to six every Wednesday, like we've done in the past. Uh, You know, the the format is more or less going to stay the same. The first 10 or so minutes 
is going to be what we're doing now, talking about what's changed week over week, looking at some charts, getting you updated on the economy, on inflation, on interest rates, on inventory, all of that stuff. And then the last 50 minutes or so is going to be answering your questions. Now, we've always gone through questions and tried to answer them in order and try to make sure everybody gets their questions answered and so on and so forth. Now would be a good time to start putting those questions in, right? The first 10 minutes while we're talking, start putting your questions in that you have for the night. If you have additional questions as we're having conversation, put some more in there. But we're going to try to pick the very best questions to make the very best show so that you guys are coming away educated with the right information versus having to, you know, rehash, answer the same questions later in the show over and over again. And if we feel like there's a really good question, we might wait a little bit on that question until there's more people. So we're not re-answering that question. So hopefully that is helpful. You know, I appreciate you guys showing up every week, but we just want to make sure we're bringing the most amount of value in the least amount of time for your sake, for our sake, for our family's sake. And um, yeah, that's it. So thank you for doing that, Josh. Of course, thank you for being here every week. Uh, but with that said, Josh, let's let's dive into some charts and, and run through these. So let's see. We're going to go to this chart right here. So inventory. I uh, didn't really see a change week over week. I think we increased about 600 homes nationwide. Uh, Orange County, 2151. So up about 100 homes uh, in the past week. That's a pretty substantial jump. Probably the biggest increase that I've seen week over week since the beginning of the year. Huntington Beach, 168. Last week, we were at 150. So we added about 18 homes on the market. So we're starting to see a little bit of inventory. Maybe that means more homes are going to come to the market. We can talk about what that means for buyers out there in a little bit because I'm still in multiple offer situations on the offers that I'm submitting. This is another look at inventory here, just kind of showing you ebbs and flows. We look at this every week. We still aren't in an upward trajectory with inventory. It's kind of more of a flatlining moving sideways, which is essentially what we just said, kind of supporting what we said. New listings. You can see we're below 21, 2022. That's why inventory continues to remain a problem. We just have less properties coming to the market you know, than we normally would this time of year. Um, Josh, you added this chart in here uh, with regards to new real estate listings. Um, Just again, it, it, yeah, it's supporting what you said there. This is the percentage difference from 27 to 2019, same month average. So showing where are we at, that's down 30%. If you look at the worst part of the pandemic, it was down 37%, right when everything jumped off. Jeb, when yep. realtors were being told, you can't show houses, you can't talk to people, you can't touch people, everyone stay home. We were down 37% from that 27 Those, day, those days average. were glorious. <laughs> those days were wonderful. And right now we're down 30% from the, those levels. So pretty damn close to what everyone thought was the end of the world. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of a shocking low number of, of homes available coming onto the market. And this chart essentially shows you, you know, compared to last year, 81,000 new listings this past week compared to 98,000 last week, substantially low. And you can see how many of those listings were immediate sales. I mean, if I had to guess, it's probably about 20% looking at that chart there. Again, another chart here just showing you pending contracts uh, with new contracts per week. So you can see 460 last year, we're at 385 this year, so 16% less. Um, pendings are also down, which isn't a surprise just because there's less activity actually happening in the market. Demand is still staying relatively strong uh, with immediate sales happening. So it's actually 23%. 23% of the market is going in as an immediate sell as soon as a home 
comes on the market. I don't know how they measure that. Is it two days? Is it one day? Is it five? I don't know, but it's quick. Uh, median home sale uh, price continues to trend higher. Uh, four four hundred and forty nine thousand, still fractionally higher than the this time last year. And median price of new listings also rising. You know, just a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago, we were at, at 399, 389. Now we're back to 418. So you can see that median price of new listings starting to rise as well. Homes with price reductions, you know, not really. It looks like it might be trending up a tid, you know, just a, a, a tidbit there, but not by much. This is interesting because, you know, we obviously hear a lot of people talking about foreclosures and people, you know, filing bankruptcy and losing their jobs and all of this stuff, when in all reality, it's increased, but not to a level that makes any real difference in anything um, at this time. As you can see, yeah, it's increased a little bit, but still well below um, numbers that we've saw, you know, if, if you were comparing it to the last housing crash. Now, Josh, this is delinquency rate, similar to what we just posted uh, on the chart there, um, showing you, you know, the, the 2000 to 2005 average, which is at 3.91% versus the current delinquency rate sitting at 2.92. Yeah, 2.92. It's at a record low and it just uh, a smidge below the, the previous record. But the important part is not just that it is a record low. Look at the right part. It's trending down. So um, anyone expecting a giant wave of foreclosures is going to be sadly disappointed. Not only do we have less people delinquent, most of the folks who are delinquent have equity to sell. So some of these folks will be forced to sell, but they're not going to be forced to lose the property back to the bank because there's no equity. Then the bank has a volume of these and needs to liquidate them at whatever price uh, available. So as long as that trend is is aiming down and at record low levels, there's just no foreclosure activity coming down the pipeline when you look at how long it takes from someone going delinquent to that house actually being foreclosed yeah, on. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, so loans rolling to more delinquent status, again, supportive of what we were just talking about there. So less and less going further and further into that process or record low levels of delinquency and those that are are not rolling to more delinquent status. And, and something we've talked about before, Josh, is that, you know, not government, not necessarily government intervention, but lender intervention almost at this point. They if they got to a point which I don't foresee happening in any way, shape or form uh, based on what's out there at the moment where there were a ton of delinquencies. Lenders learned back in the last crisis, if you will, that they're better off working with home buyers, homeowners rather, to stay in their property versus going through that process. So, you know, like you saw with forbearance, if there was some sort of major blip, chances are you're going to have lenders, you're going to have intervention, you're going to have things to keep people in properties that essentially would keep that from happening, you know, in a in, on some sort of large scale, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. The government has shown that they they don't like a free market responses um, and they will step in and intervene and keep things from getting too bad uh, or too good, depending on uh, what their their whim is at the that time. This is just showing here cures to current by previous uh, DQ bucket. Just look at the cures are trending up more people coming out of their delinquency out of their foreclosure. Um, you know, we can have the debate. People are talking. Are we in a recession? When's the recession coming? It likely is going to come and the economy 
economy is trending down. But despite that, household uh, finances are doing good enough that we're at record low levels of delinquency and people are coming out of delinquency at high rates. This one here, Jeb, just wanted again to, to point out, this is supportive of what we are saying. The loans that have gone on the books in the last, say, what? It really, just anything post-crisis there from 2009 forward, the blue bar is 760 and above. That is the biggest portion of loans that are being done. And that bottom bar, that sub 620, has basically gone down to nothing. I'm not saying they're nothing. I do loans for people under 620, but like a handful a year, one or two. I have friends that do them. People, especially homeowners refinancing, they get into a situation, they need to be able to tap that equity. So it is good that they have options, but most people are not buying with a sub 620 credit score. And the vast majority of buyers, if we look here, are in that 720 plus uh, range. And it also goes to people are asking, well, who's buying? I don't know who can afford at these prices. Well, it's people with more savings. It's people with better credit scores. It's people with higher incomes that want to get into the market, that want to become homeowners and believe that home prices will be level or higher in the future and that interest rates are going to go lower, giving them an opportunity to get a better house payment in the future, despite the fact that they qualify today. Jeb, this one kind of was was interesting, an interesting look at it. Um, what this distribution of prepay activity by reason. So this is loans that are being paid off. A refinance gets replaced with a new loan, but it doesn't matter. So all we're looking at here is loans being paid off. Where is that money coming from? And the gold bar is now, what would you call that, Jeb? 70% of activity, and that is homes being sold. So the loan gets paid off because the home is being sold. The interesting one, if you look at the, the green and dark blue, those are refis, either rate and term or cash out refi. So a new loan replacing an old loan through refinance. Those are smaller than curtailment. And Jeb and I both said curtailment. What in the world is curtailment? That's voluntary prepayments. People saying, hey, my payment is $2,200 a month. I'm going to send in $2,500 a month. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more people paying down their loans than replacing their loans. This is not shocking based off of the market activity. Jeb, I thought it was very sweet in the comments section on different YouTube channels uh, that we have this week. Just people asking, like, what, what's going on? Are you guys in, in trouble? Like, no, but a lot of people who didn't have a strong database, a strong network of clients and got into the market late, most most of your people in the mortgage and real estate industry are struggling hard. Well, right now. And the reality is this isn't 2020, 2021, 2022. It's not a gangbuster year, right? I mean, but fortunately, we've been in the business a long time. You learn to put money away. You learn to, you know, you have relationships and you're still doing business. You're just not doing business at the rate that you were doing. And with any commission type business, that those are the times you have to be prepared for. So when agents talk about getting into business, it's like, yeah, real estate is great, but there are also things that you have to be aware of as a real estate agent, someone taking on, you know, a sole, a commission-based income um, to make sure you're comfortable doing it, right? And and that's the thing is Josh and I are going to be here in a year. We're going to be here in five years. Well, maybe by, it, by choice, we might not be, but um, financially, we're, go we're going to be just fine. So, so just chart, yeah. yeah, yeah, Jeb, this one got shared from someone who is firmly in the, hey, inflation is going to stay higher for a longer camp, not at the levels they're at now, but higher than the 2% that we became accustomed to over the last 10, 15 years. But this says monthly inflation is now mostly a core services story. So all you need to know is the yellow part there 
look from the left side of the screen, yellow core services was a small portion of inflation. Now it's the biggest portion of inflation. The second part I want you guys to look at from this is how little the other parts make up. The purple uh, core goods and the energy, the, the pink orange color there had got really big and they've normalized and are back really small. So the note from the guy who sent this, who is someone who believes inflation is gonna stay higher for longer, he says, um, Food prices have stabilized. Energy is subtracting from, from inflation. CPI gains now mostly come from core services, the largest part of which is housing. We've talked about it before on the show, Jeb. The way housing is measured as a part of CBI is very lagging. When home prices were going up, it showed, hey, shelter costs are totally manageable and under control. Now that they're coming back under control, it's still showing that they're uh, accelerating at a high rate like last year. So looking at the whole chart, we see core services inflation has been relatively steady for the whole period. The chart's first three 2019 bars look much like the last three here in 2023, which if it continues, may bring post-COVID inflation back in a full circle to where it started. That's my belief. We may end up a little bit higher than where we've been. But in the next year or two, we are going to end up back near that 2% long-term inflation and interest rates will, as a result, be somewhere in the plus or minus 4% range. Um, this this one, Jeb here, just, uh, this is uh, a lot of the stuff that Jeb is talking about is things that are realtors are mainly involved in, which is existing homes. This is new home stuff. So just again, showing new home, uh, new construction permits down 21% year over year. New home starts down 22% year over year. Completions up 1%. So Jeb, you want to comment on that? I mean, you, you've had that chart here that shows that everyone's going, no, see, there's so much under construction right now. It's all going to get completed at the same time and bring a ton of supply to the market. And we're just not seeing that. No, we're not. I mean, we're not seeing it in our market. I mean, I realize there are markets out there that have a lot of new construction. Southern California, unfortunately, is not one of them. Something that you and I talked about on the podcast that we recorded today that's going to drop next week, you know, the risk of not buying a home, uh, which I think is a touchy subject, but something that people need to hear. It's going to drop next Tuesday on the Educated Home Buyer uh, YouTube channel. It's going to drop on the podcast. We're, we have it basically now synchronized. We're both are going to drop on the same day, which is going to be Tuesday every week. So listen to that. But one thing in there I talk about, Josh, that I think is important to note is that, you know, yes, there's new construction being built, right? Some areas have more, some areas have less. But with that said, how much of that new construction is quote unquote affordable or in your price point? Because it's really important to note. We always talk about Huntington Beach being one of those markets where we don't have a lot of new construction. It's all infill development. It's, you know, small projects here and there. But there are some projects that are having 50, 100 homes being built, you know, in different pockets. And th that that adds some supply to the market. But here's the thing. The, the less expensive of, of the two communities that I can think of are 1.3, 1.4 for a tri-level condo townhome style property and 2 million, 2.1 for a single family home that's new construction that you still have to pay for upgrades. You still have to pay all of that. So yeah, there's some new construction coming, but for most people out there, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't add any additional supply, which is really what we need to talk about. And another thing that where the new construction quote unquote issues could lie, in my opinion, are with the multifamily. Multifamily has been overbuilt in some areas. And a lot of what is coming to the market is going to be uh, multifamily properties. Those 
could be you could have multifamily take a hit in some way if those properties are being uh, built to sell as multifamily versus being built to rent or what have you. So that's kind of the market if you want to pay attention to it. But for the most part, I don't see any any new construction uh, issues coming, you know, in, in the majority of markets out there. And if you look, Jeb, the majority of construction has been tilted towards that multifamily. And you could see some downward pressure on rents going forward in areas where there's been a lot of building. But even that has tilted towards the luxury high-end stuff. This is just the housing market index from the National Association of Home Builders. Um, 50, we've, we've got back to 50, which 50 is neutral. It doesn't show expansion or contraction. But from December at 31, it's been a strong trend up. I don't expect this to shoot back up uh, super high. If you look at the internal components, pretty consistent. Um, 48 in the West, 55 in the South, 45 in the Northeast, 42 in the Midwest. Um, the, the portion of it, they say current sales, 56. So it's, it's sort of expansionary. Builders feel really good about that. Future sales expectations, 57. They feel pretty good about that. Buyer traffic is at 33, which meaning that it is a low level and it's it's trending up uh, for them. But just again, another insight there into what we're at. You guys always like to ask, what are mortgage rates at? It's a loaded question, especially with the new loan level price adjustments. It's all over the place. This is from Mortgage News Daily. So that 30-year fix, 6.7, they were at about 6.5 last week. That's about accurate. Again, we're at the high uh, portion of uh, this, this range where we've been at. Jumbo's a little better than that. 15's a little better still. The 5-1 arm, as you can see, it's higher than the 30-year fixed. I don't know why they even quote them, who's doing them. Uh, as we talk about, when you look at most of these national averages, the FHA and VA stuff is higher than it needs to be. Um, a lot of direct lenders just overcharge and subsidize their conventional loans with that. So 6.35, 6.32, you should be in the 6% range if you have really good credit, possibly uh, lower than that. Now, I, I know earlier there was a chart in there, Josh, I didn't see it at the moment where it showed the 10 year um, on that scale that we had used. Did you remove that? No, I think I forgot to when I added it, I forgot no. to reload it back all in good. here. But the, the key part, Jeff, we're at 357 today on the 10 year. 356 is the the intermediate support the big supports at 362 so as long as we stay under 362 we're probably going to make a run back down to 340 um which again it's that quarter percent range we're just chopping back and forth here all right good stuff so with that said um a couple of different questions here that we're going to address real quick just look and says is there anywhere you guys post the charts to view so for a while we were forming a community on circle um, and for whatever reason, just like life, we kind of got out of pitching that community and that was a place that we were posting those charts. So here's what I, I, I make a promise this, this, this coming week, we will figure out a place that we can post these weekly that you can go and see the charts because I know a lot of people listen on the podcast, don't have access to the video, um, and want to see these charts. So Mark my words, we'll have a place for these next week where you can go and check them out and make them available, even if I have to just make them publicly available through um, Google and share them in the description. But nevertheless, they'll be there next week and you'll be able to find them. So thank you. And then uh, Alberto says, changes to the show make sense. Thanks for your hard work. So if you weren't here at the beginning of the show, uh, changes coming to the show. It's going to be an hour now, no longer two hours. Uh, just for time's sake, we're going to try to nail some really, really good questions, be quicker with our answers, make sure you guys are finding value in the time you're spending here. And for that, thank you. So 
David has a question. Josh, he says, has a home, 1,400 square feet, detached, four-car garage behind, considering converting it into an ADU. How difficult of a process is that permit-wise, and what finance, financing options are out there? So I know we don't really know about the permit process so much that I don't think you are aware. We can talk about it a little bit, but financing options out there. What are the options if you want to build an ADU? It's the same as just about anything else. A home equity line of credit, uh, a fixed rate second, a refinance. For most people, if we're talking $200,000, $100,000 to convert a space or build a space for an ADU, and they have a three, four, five dollars $500,000 mortgage at 3%, two and three quarters, three and a half, they're not going to give that up. So we're generally talking some type of second mortgage. There are also personal loans out there. If you're on the lower end of that scale, if you think you can get this done for $50,000, $70,000, those can be options. But uh, in the big picture and over the long haul, your perfect world, you want to roll it into that first mortgage and have one loan. But at current rates, we always want to measure the blended rate. The smaller the first mortgage is, the more it could lean towards possibly making sense uh, as a cash out refinance. The bigger the first mortgage is, the more you're looking at some type of second mortgage or home equity line of credit, which those rates are really high right now. So, it's... And then Ariel had a similar question, said answer the same question, but with an attached. So it doesn't change, right? Detached, attached, it's the same process. Am I Am I right? No, absolutely. Um, and some uh, what will happen, like probably what we should talk about, and I am not an expert on this. We haven't had a ton of them as it gets more and more popular. I will have to educate myself on this. But lenders do differentiate when you look at doing a refinance, a first mortgage in the future um, as to how they're looking at that property. Is it separately metered? Is it attached? Is it detached? So the what happens is when zoning laws break down, when state and local governments say, hey, we want housing at all costs, do whatever you want, then lenders look at it and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. This is a converted garage. We used to say that was illegal, but now it meets the zoning requirements and it's up yeah. to par and permitted. So it's going to continue to be the wild wild west we're getting more towards some clarity on that but i think it'll be three to five years before we're super clear on what can be done with your first mortgage financing in terms of an adu and with regards to permitting going to change by city right so check with your city i mean the state essentially overrode city laws if you will and said hey we're allowing these um you know they essentially overrides hoa rules i mean it, it's crazy how deep it actually goes but there are cities like Huntington Beach where we're located where the city basically says screw you state we're not allowing them and now we're suing the state so if you're in Huntington Beach it's going to be a difficult process to probably get an ADU done versus say a city like Anaheim or Orange where you know pr bigger lots probably a little bit uh easier more lenient to get them approved so just check with your city i'm sure there's some guidelines there that you can um you know, print out and, uh, and, and if you talk to any contractors out there that are doing it, that have a reputation for doing it, they should, they should know the laws as well. All right. Uh, Maria says, where can I find if, uh, if my home has a lien or a realtor can let me know if I do, if I am planning on selling my home. So yes, yes. And yes, uh, is the answer. Um, if you have a lien, in theory, you'd like to know. Um, most people have a lien on their home. It's their mortgage. Uh, but for those that don't, there are other liens that could come out. Mechanics liens, things, you know, that weren't paid for whatever reason, sometimes get attached to your properties. A title report on your property will, will show any liens that you have against it. That is something that is going to come up when you sell your property. A real estate agent should be able to 
you know, get your address, get a title report for you, be able to show that to you, and it will show any existing liens on the property. Um, but you could also just call a real estate agent and they could make a quick phone call and probably find out for you as well. So it, it's relatively easy process. Now, unless it's something super recent, it might not populate. Um, but, you know, chances are if it's more than a couple of weeks old, it's going to show up. All right, Josh, um, we have a question here from World Trucker. It's a good question. It says, is there an advantage on hiring a mortgage broker in the area that I'm thinking of buying or not? What should I look for uh, with regards to a good broker trying to get a lower monthly payment for a second home? So I think the question really is, hey, I'm in Huntington Beach. I'm buying a property in, say, San Francisco. Should it? Will I benefit in a way by finding somebody that's in San Francisco versus Huntington Beach? Within the state, I would say there's very, very little difference. Um, there's just not a whole lot of unique and different stuff. Now, he has a unique situation here. If you go to a broker that doesn't have a lot of experience or an awful lot of products, and believe it or not, there are some brokers. They call themselves brokers. They get approved with two, three lenders and send all their loans there. So really, that's not all that different than being a direct lender and having two or three investors to sell the loans to. You don't have a lot of options. But as a second home, we talked about this, I believe, last week that we now have the same loan level price adjustments for second homes as we have for investment properties. They used to be priced the same as your primary. Now, there are lots of lenders that don't sell to Fannie and Freddie who don't look at it the same way or they look at it somewhere in between. So if you go to someone that's only quoting you Fannie Freddie product, you're going to see some really, really high interest rates on a second home, whereas a portfolio lender, a bank, a credit union may offer you something much, much better. So from that perspective, it's probably worth calling around if you're looking for a second home in an area where there are community banks, where there are some local credit unions, call them, tell them what you're thinking about doing. Hopefully the realtor that you're working with that area can point you in that direction. But for your typical vanilla product, if you know you're gonna get an FHA, VA, Fannie, Freddie, that piece doesn't matter. If you're looking for something niche, some type of down payment assistance, then you would wanna use someone locally. You know, I can do loans in Texas. I know all of the products that are nationwide. I don't know some of the unique local products there that are available to you. Um, so in terms of finding a, a good broker, you had to just uh, ask for a referral, um, do some research online, um, reach out to us. We can point you in the direction. I have a network of brokers around the country who, depending on what you're looking at doing, um, can do a great job for you and can help you uncover some of those products. But you may, in this situation as a second home, you may need to be your own broker and make a few calls to the community banks and credit unions that don't work with, with brokers or outside lenders. All right. That said, there's a referral link scrolling the bottom now. If you want to get in touch with a lender, real estate agent, anywhere in the country, you can use that. People that Josh and I both know, like, and trust and can guide you through that process. Another favor I want to ask is if you're here right now and you haven't done so already, hit the hit the like button, you know, show, show your love um, that you appreciate us being here. Uh, you know, again, an hour, two hours, you know, what we've done over the last couple of years is a lot of time and, you know, kind of pouring into the community. So those little things actually help out the community. Josh's YouTube handle is actually under his photo there. So check that out. And if you're not listening to the Educated Homebuyer podcast uh, on YouTube, you're doing yourself a disservice. It is 20, 30, 40 minutes of Josh and I talking about a detailed subject and guiding you through that process. This past, the video that we posted yesterday, also on the podcast, 
is something has to change, right? That's the, that's what we all keep saying. Something has to change, right? Or does it? And that's the conversation Josh and I are having about the housing market. What has to change for something to actually change? So if you haven't done so already, go over, listen to the, the video. Once you you know, find value in it, which you will hit the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. And for that, Josh and I will be grateful. So, um, Josh, we've got some questions here. Um, well, let's, let's go back to world trekker because there's a, there's a good question here. Uh, says, can I buy a primary and turn it into a rental in six months? Do I need to let the bank know once I turn it into a rental? So, what you are signing when you sign your loan documents for a mortgage for a primary residence is that you intend to occupy that property as your primary residence within 60 days. No comment on how long you intend to live in it as your primary residence. No comment on when you intend to convert it into a rental. There is no occupancy police. So it's a little bit of a moral gray area. You're obviously trying to get the best terms by going with the primary residence. You do need to move into that property. You are committing fraud. If you're signing, I'm going to move into it within 60 days and do not move into it. Um, but there's really, there's no hard and fast rule of how long you need to live there. I've had people legitimately need to sell a property or need to rent out a property two, three months after moving into it. They had to go back home to take care of parents whatever that situation may be. So lots of valid reasons why someone may not stay in the long term. You do not need to tell the lender. They're not going to ask. You don't need to tell them. Um, they just uh, operate off of an expectation that you are going to do as you tell them you intend to do. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Red Apples Kim, how do you guys feel about lean sales at auction? So um, I there's opportunities in in every auction out there. Uh, but what I will say is, you know, being in Southern California, you know, the competition is is high at any sort of, uh, you know, auction type of property. I know, you know, some states have like tax lien sales where they sell properties like Florida and some other states and that sort of thing. So each state's going to vary a little bit differently. I think people get the idea that they hear about auctions, they hear about lien sales, they think immediately I can get a deal, It's I'm getting a property under value, and maybe in some cases that actually happens, uh, but I would say the majority of the time you're not getting a deal, you're buying a property at the value that it should be. Um, if it's distressed, you're getting a distressed price, uh, and, and maybe there's some value in that because you're going to do um, some work to it to, to add value, but for the for most people out there buying a property, it's not an option. Most times you're, you know, you're going to need cash to do this sort of thing. Um, it's not going to be financeable. So just, just my two cents. All right, Josh is, um, uh, vacation homes, uh, not really a question that you uh, or I are really in a position to answer, but let's, let's say are vacation homes taking longer to sell. I would say depends on the market that you're in. Um, if you're in a, uh, a market that is popular during the summer, vacation homes probably are going to sell quicker this time of year um, because people are headed to the beach and headed to areas where, you know, they want to spend their time for the summer. If you have a, a house in, you know, Mammoth, might be taking longer to sell right now because nobody's thinking about going there after record snowfall and that sort of thing. So these markets shift. I think a lot of the second home vacation markets got a big boom during the pandemic because people could work from home. 
They could do all of these different things that they never could in the past. So a lot of those markets got saturated. Um, so I feel like there's probably going to be a cooling off in some of those markets, which means it's going to take longer to sell, but a lot of it is seasonal. Um, each market's going to react a little bit differently than, than other markets. Now, never going to be a blanket answer, you know, for the most part across the board. So if you're looking at one of those markets, you know, if you're looking, for example, to buy a house in an area that gets a lot of snow, the best time to buy it is, you know, when there's no snow, um, because it doesn't have the competition. Same thing with beach homes, right? In the winter, when it's snowing, nobody's thinking about going to the beach. That's the time to be buying them. But just my well, two Jeb, cents. Yeah, Jeb, we have the, we have the place in Rancho Mirage, so it's all anecdotal. But I watch the same thing. If someone comes onto the market in the summertime when it's 114 degrees out there yeah. and there's no Canadians running around looking to buy second they homes, sell. they need to sell. They're highly motivated to sell. Now, if they put it on the market in January, thinking that somewhere during the season it was going to sell and it just hasn't, they're probably overpriced. Um, I will also say our development in Rancho Los Palmas, there's 850 units in there. So there's always homes on the market. And you can see um, what I can say is a lot of the things that are selling, if they're not really, really nice, it, it sort of falls in line, Jeb, with what we say as the market as a whole. The stuff that's super highly upgraded and really nice, it's selling and it's selling at a premium. A couple jaw dropping prices that I've seen in there recently. But most of the stuff that's nice, the most recent sale, I looked at it and I go, it's a nice, clean unit. Buyer got a decent price. But the seller made a decent sale also for something that isn't, you know, tip top shape. So totally anecdotal. We look around. I'm not seeing any spectacular deals out there. I'm not seeing anything sitting on the market forever unless it was um, priced inappropriately. So and it probably varies. You know, when we talk about vacation homes. Charleston, South Carolina is going to be very different than Rancho Mirage, California. going to be very different than Aspen. So different markets. You have to look at each one and, and talk to a professional in those areas. Different strokes. For different folks. Not really. I just wanted to say that. Um, Mr. Lombo says, can you refinance any loan, even if the contract says you might not be able to refinance the loan? So, Josh, are we talking about Dream for All or are we talking about something else? I'm not I'm not familiar with the contract that says you can't refinance. Yeah, that, that's the, the $24 million question with this one. What contract? A seller can't put that really in the contract. You, you can agree to anything um, contractually, but is the seller asking you to do that? Is the lender asking you to do that? Generally, we think when someone asks us, is there a prepayment penalty on the loan? Well, you can absolutely refinance if there's a prepayment penalty. You just have to pay the prepayment penalty. But Jeb, you brought up the unique situation, Dream for All. They say you can refinance once and only once. It literally in the guideline says once and only once. So when we're looking at that, um, yeah, they, they can write that in there and say that we, our guidelines say, and, and what happens with that is there's a subordinate lien against the property. It's not a loan. It's a lien for X amount of dollars that says you will share the appreciation when you close on it. And what they're saying is we, we will subordinate one time to a new first lien and we won't do it again. So different questions. We just need to know what contract we're talking about is, is preventing you from refinancing. All right. Good stuff. Uh, let's got a couple of questions here. John asked the question. John's a longtime viewer, hasn't been here in a little while, but welcome back. John says, how hard is it to evict someone coming out of the pandemic? So I think at, at this point, you shouldn't have the issues that, that people were having two years ago um, coming out of the pandemic because all of the, the, you know, the moratoriums have been lifted. Uh, so it, it depends. Um, it depends on what state you're in, right? California is very tenant friendly. Very difficult to, to evict tenants. 
Um, in some cases, people can just take over the property and say they live there and, and, you know, the local law enforcement doesn't have anything they can do. So, you know, depending on the state, I think you're in California, it's a bigger issue than, than other states. Um, just because we feel like everybody has rights, even if they don't own something, they, they have the right to it. Uh, so well, in, that's, in Portland, you have the right to take over public spaces as your space to live. Yeah, in. that's, I, I mean, I figured yeah, this is my, this is where I'm going to build my house right now and right here on the street. I don't care that there's a freeway there on the courthouse steps. This yeah, it doesn't matter. Land. I can. Do um, it. Yeah, so I don't really have a, a definite answer for you, but it should be easier than it than it was. Uh, Susie has a unique question. Says, "Is there a way to buy a home in Florida without an offer letter? We want to move to Claremont, Florida, from California." Um, yes. I mean, there's always a way to buy without an offer letter. But what I would ask you, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking pre-approval letter. Um, is no, where we're going. Saying an offer, an offer letter for their employment. So they want to move oh, I to, got you. to Florida from California, oh, and they want to do it without having an offer letter for the job. So ah. the, the answer, Jeb, you're still right. There's always a way to do it. Can you do it? Yes, you 100. You could do a DSCR loan and buy that property back there. Say I'm going to rent it out. Um, it's reverse occupancy fraud because you're actually intending to live in it. Um, you won't like the rates on it. So there's always workarounds, especially the better your credit and the more assets you have. So if you're selling a house here in California, you got $500,000 to put down on a $750,000 home. We've got lots of options for that little loan. If you're moving there and you want to buy using FHA with three and a half percent down, no, we're going to need a job. So options, yes, unlikely they will be options that you like. All right, there you go. Um, thanks for the clarification there, Mr. Josh. Uh, on some lonely sh I like it. That's the comment. Uh, that's the name. It says, I'm moving to Chico, California. Will Chico be a good start for real estate? I don't know the Chico market well enough, but I know that there's a college there. I know that there's people that want to live there. Um, is it 460 good for real estate? median home price, Jeb. 460 median home price. 460? 460. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's affordable by California standards. Um, you know, price point wise, whether or not it's a good place to start for real estate depends on, again, all the things that we talk about, where you are in your life and, you know, what your goals are and all of that. If you're planning on being there, you're planning on, you know, setting some sort of foundation, you have some stabilization in your life. I think, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, wherever you're going to settle down for a period of time, Assuming you have some time on your side, I think it's a good place to to buy real estate if that is, you know, what you're trying to accomplish long term. You know, again, if you if you kept it, you were able to rent it out because it's a, you know, a college town, you know, ish, um, you know, you always be able to find renters, that sort of thing. Um, but outside of that, I don't know a lot about Chico. Josh, do you know anything about Elon Musk stating that the housing market crash will occur when people start getting laid off? Um, I feel like a lot of things get attributed to Mr. Musk, um, even if they weren't said by him. I'm not saying that he didn't say this. I'm just saying I haven't heard that statement directly. So is that uh, are you aware of this? Uh, I'm not. And if it is true and accurate, um, he's a little bit of a cartoon character. Uh, and I pay a lot more attention to him when he's talking about engineering versus economics. Um, just because you are really smart and spectacularly successful in one area doesn't mean you have any particular insights in uh, another. He doesn't make small statements. Everything is a big, huge, massive statement. So it wouldn't surprise me if he said it. It also wouldn't um, 
dissuade me from thinking what my own actual research thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there were videos at one point going around YouTube that he was living in a tiny house, that that was his house. He sold his house and he lives in a tiny, I'm like, who cares? Why, if he wants to live in a tiny house, God bless him. Like, uh, go for it, buddy. Uh, but nevertheless, um, no, no real answer there. Um, what, you know, we talk again, you, you talked about recessions and people losing their jobs and that's going to lead to, you know, whatever. We actually talk about that in the Educated Home Buyer podcast that we recorded today. Again, it's going to drop next Tuesday where we talk about the risk of not buying a house. We talk about the risk of buying a house too. So there you get two sides of the question. Um, we're not just pro housing here. We talk about the opportunities that could come if you don't buy a house now, what that looks like. So Again, that, that's going to drop on the Educated Home Buyer YouTube channel, which is going to be next Tuesday, and on the Spotify, you know, Apple, all of those great places to listen to podcasts um, next Tuesday as well. So check it out. Josh, we're done, man. That was it. Um, you you told them they only have an hour, so they fired the questions quick. That's ready, it. Ready we're, to go. we're 172 viewers in, 53 likes. So if you guys would hit the like button, I would appreciate it. Um, so... I had surgery last week. It's something I forgot to mention. Um, had a lot of you guys reach out to me privately and wish me well. So just want to give you a quick update. So I had hernia surgery, had bilateral hernia surgery, uh, lathroscopic last Thursday morning. And as of yesterday, felt amazing. Um, honestly, like recovery was really, really easily easy today. I have more swelling than I had yesterday. So I've, I've kind of reverted a little bit, but overall feel really well. So I appreciate you guys that reached out and um, and uh, and wished me well. So that was uh, that was awesome. Uh, let's see here. Is it a mistake? Anya is asking to offer one point five percent commission to a buyer's agent. Does that matter to agents? So you're going to ask an agent that question, and I'm going to give you. I'm going to let Josh answer the question first because clearly biases, right? Um, as a real estate agent who would love to help you buy a home. If you're in Southern California, you're looking to buy a home. I would love to help you. If I'm not able to help you, I'm happy to refer you to someone I know that I trust that can guide you through that process. So if you're listening now, you're buying a home, plan on buying a home. You don't have a realtor, reach out to me. I want to be your realtor. And Josh probably wants to do your financing. So use us as a resource. Don't just listen to us. Call us have a conversation and let us guide you through that process. But Josh, someone, you hear that question. You're not a real estate agent, but what are your thoughts? So what what's the average commission? Nationwide, it's it's over 5%, which generally yeah. is split evenly, two and a half, two and right. a half. And, so and something important when, to note, there's no set commission, right? So there's no standard, there's no set. There's a common number that, that comes up in conversation. So. Yep. So if we're saying you're going to give them one and a half versus two and a half, mm -hmm. you're saying, hey, what I would like you to do is go get a buyer, show that buyer my house, negotiate the contract, keep it on turn on, on time, on schedule, get everyone what they need, but I only want to pay you 60% of what's common. If you think that that is not going to impact the number of people who are showing your home, it would be naive to think that. And what I would say is if you're thinking of doing that, you should say to the listing agent, well, how much are you going to charge? Because if you think it's not going to hurt us to offer one and a half to the other side, 
you should also work for one and a half. If it's reasonable for them, it's reasonable for you. One of the things that infuriates me is you'll see whether it's a 5% commission or a 6% commission, you'll see agents that, well, I'm the listing agent. I'm going to charge three and a half and I'll give two and a half to the other side. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll do it for five. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep three and we're going to pay two to the other side, whatever the number is. Um, and Jeb, you can comment on it. It is, it's a different job. Each of those is a different job. Um, and agents will err on the side of, hey, listing is harder to get. There is more work to do. But I don't know. I would rather list a home than I would ever want to put people in my car and drive around on the weekends to see 10 homes that they may or may not like and then write 15 offers that may or may not get accepted. Um, right. So I, I don't know. I would be very careful. Um, I think it would be naive to think that it wouldn't have a negative impact on uh, the people that are willing to show your home. Yeah, you're going to have less showings, less activity, less, uh, in my opinion, less of an opportunity to maximize price. That's really what it boils down to. So, you know, commissions are typically suppressed in competitive times where there's not a lot of inventory. Buyers only have a couple of different options to choose from. And similar to the markets we were in the last couple of years, right? But agents say, you know what? You don't have to offer the buyer's agent that much because they don't have a lot of options. Well, guess what? As an agent out there, when I see that sort of thing, I think difficult seller, hard to negotiate with, not somebody you want to deal with. Um, agent on the other side probably has no idea what the hell they're doing. The fact that they took that listing to start with, or the fact that the listing agent probably wants to double end it by offering such a low commission to, to the point where no buyers would work with it. So to me, it brings concern. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, mean that you're going to get less, you know, for your home, but I would tell you, you're going to get less demand and demand it equals price, right? Exposure drives demand, demand drives price. So you can get a lot of exposure by having beautiful photos on your home, a great agent doing marketing, whatever. But when I, as an agent, go in and see that, I'm immediately turned off because I think, you know what? Not not a person that I, that not my type of people on the other side. For what, take right or wrong, that's what I view it as. So, um, and yes, you can charge the buyer additional commission and do different things, but I will tell you, and, and it seems, you know, counterintuitive, but paradoxically, the higher commission you offer, the more money you're going to get for your house. It seems crazy, but that's the reality. Pay more, you get more. So my thoughts. Anyway, um, yeah, and Anya, you paid 3% each last time. That's what I would say is common, um, more common and probably, you know, going to maximize price there by doing that. All right, John Fam, one of our regulars is back talking about how young we look tonight, Josh. This guy's a character and I like it. John, we need a picture of you. It's yeah. not fair. It's not a fair are, that you get to see. What if John's like 78 years old? Yeah, you know, it's not fair that you get to see us with this. With like we have like medical lights pointing on us. We Josh and I look way younger than we appear on this this uh this video, you know, the problem with 4k guys is it, it, it actually, it, it doesn't enhance it. It makes you look worse. So 
we Josh and I are both in our in our mid twenties and um, doing great, guys. Doing we, great. We should get we should get some filters to put on here, Jeff, to make us look like we're like fifteen. People are like, what are these fifteen year olds on there talking about mortgages? Yeah, they said they've been in business how long? <laughs> uh, all right, let's see. Um, let's see, what here, do we got? Uh, here's, a here's a, yep, yep. Sorry, I just wait, no, no, off. stop clicking off of it. Nope, you do it. I want to do it. Is there a way to get the seller to cover closing costs? How do we how do we get your seller to cover closing costs for the buyer, Jeff? Um, gonna be a little tougher in the market that we're in. Um, if unless you're in a market that has a huge surplus of inventory and and or home that's not sitting that you're interested in, uh, just because it is still competitive out there and in competitive markets, it's more difficult to get the seller to do that sort of thing. I will tell you, the last couple of offers I've put in for this one buyer, I mean, we are, you know having a hell of a time getting an offer accepted with a very strong, um, you know, down payment, very strong credit profile, very strong, just offers. We're right. We're writing great offers and we're not finding success because there's multiple offers. There's multiple people willing to do what we're willing to do. Plus more. I mean, a home we put in an offer in on yesterday morning, was it yesterday morning or maybe the day before we got a response back yesterday or the, a lack of a response yesterday. I think the home was priced around a million. We offered a million one eighty. Um, now this is a, a, a property up in North Tustin area, larger lot, single level home, um, could be rebuilt, but like a nice home to live in now. Uh, and we offered a million one eighty, so roughly a hundred and something thousand dollars over the asking price. I got a call back from the listing agent later yesterday and essentially said, we're only countering the top three offers. You're not one of them. Um, all three of those offers have are above a million two fifty, which is seventy thousand dollars higher than we were. Take that. So when you're in that situation asking a seller to pay closing costs, they're gonna be like, What is this guy doing? Uh, versus Hey, my home's been sitting. It's not selling. Hey, you know, a buyer's willing is, is interested in your home, but they're asking for this. Hell yeah. Let's let's consider giving them some closing costs or some credits so that we can put a deal together. So depends on the market, depends on the property. All of that stuff matters. Um, so just make sure you're working with a professional locally that understands your market and can guide you through that and let you know, you know, if they're finding success doing that sort of thing. The, the follow-up, Jeb, there is that they're looking at a new build. So with a new build, shouldn't be hard at all. Most builders, as long as you use their lender, are giving pretty strong concessions. They're not going to do it for an outside lender for the most part, um, but they will give you concessions um, if you're going to use their lender so that they have more control of the situation and they know that you're going to close uh, in a timely manner and not leave them with their construction loan hanging out over their heads after they finish construction. No, good stuff. And even better stuff, guys. I just received an email that says I've been nominated for a five-star award for an Orange just, County. You just, just have to I pay, just to have claim to pay award. a couple hundred dollars to claim my award. That's so nice of these people to claim me as a pro and then want me to pay them so that they'll publish my name. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Hard being successful, guys. Costs money. Costs a lot of money to be successful. All right. Uh, they follow up with the question, why are buyers going super above the asking price? Because they're seeing a potential in that property that uh, isn't reflected in the current price, uh, if that makes sense. So these properties, some of them are hard to price out because 
lot size is 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 uh, larger than any of the comparable properties. So th therefore, some of the stuff is harder to price out than other properties. So in that case, could you say that the property was underpriced to draw activity? Sure, you could. Um, but even then, we went above the uh, the offer price to a, a a price that we thought was fair, reasonable, um, not egregious on on my client side, and something that we thought would be competitive. In fact, we we weren't. We had people willing to do more, pay more, do that sort of thing. So to each his own. Um, I have clients that didn't buy uh, during the pandemic that they'll call me every six, eight months, want to put in an offer on a property, and they still want to offer the asking price versus going over when I'm telling them, hey, listen, every home in this market in your price point is selling above the asking price. This is where you have to go. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you're not going to become a homeowner anytime soon because you missed out for the last two years by doing your tactic, not listening to my you know, advice as the professional, and you're still in the same position with a much higher interest rate if you did buy something. So and a, you know, a couple of those, Jeb, were you missed out by like ten or twenty thousand dollars. And I'm not saying that's insignificant, but it's one to two percent in that price point. And, and the house you're gonna is pay, up higher than that now. You're gonna pay three percent more a year in interest versus one or two percent over on the ask. So you, you just listen, I, I don't want you guys to just cave anytime someone in mortgage or real says you have to do this, what you have to do to get in, but you do have to learn when three, four, five, six, eight times you're not getting what you want and you continue to go and do the same thing. It's like you should learn the first six or eight times you get your hand burned on the stove. Well, here's the thing. If you find an agent that you trust, it's it's a lot easier to take the advice. So perhaps he doesn't trust me. I don't know. But what I will say is that, you know, I don't have an incentive to sell anybody a home. I can't tell you how many times I've been in contract with a buyer or shown a buyer a home and said, dude, I wouldn't buy this thing. Or a counter came back and said, I wouldn't accept that counter. Whereas if I were just into selling homes, I'd be like, absolutely, accept it. Let's get this thing. That's not who I am, right? I need to sleep at night. I need to be comfortable with the decisions I make. And my goal isn't to get everybody into a home. My goal is to get the people that want to buy a home and are comfortable buying a home to be able to buy a home and do it the right way. Um, and that's really where this whole thing comes from, right? The education that we do, time that we put into this, the podcast, you know, the separate channels, all of that information. Yes, I benefit from it. So let's not, you know, um, be crazy here, but I'm trying to provide the value that you guys ultimately are trying to absorb so that you can make the right decisions. And, you know, with that, I, I hope that we're, uh, we're bringing that value to you guys. All right, Josh. Jim, I, I, I yeah. like this question and it needs a realtor right. to answer it. All right. WR says a home I made an offer on ended up closing below my offer price. What are the possible reasons? Depends. Um, it's a, that's a really good question, right? So I would say the highest offer isn't always the offer that gets accepted. I would say there's a really good, uh, a really high percentage of the time that is, that is the case though, right? I think it comes price first terms somewhat second to some extent. Um, but what could be a reason? They could have originally accepted a price higher than your offer. The That's appraisal, what I was thinking. The appraisal could have come in less. There could have been things that showed up in the home inspection where the buyer asked for a reduction in price or some sort of credit or what have you that reflected in a lower price. Or 
and this is not what people want to hear, but maybe you are a buyer or a buyer putting three and a half percent down. And the stronger offer was putting 50% down and they just felt more comfortable with somebody putting more money down. Is that right? Is it wrong? You know, to each seller, they make their own decisions, but there's a number of things that could go there that, you know, could reflect in a lower price. Now, I will say there's an off chance that your offer didn't get presented, right? That there are realtors out there, unfortunately, that don't do business the ethical way. And well, you know, if if they can benefit themselves, they're, they'll do things to other offers. So, not saying that's the case, but that could be an option as well. So there's a lot that could have gone on that that could have made them accept that other offer. All right, Josh, we're one one minute in, so let's go a couple more minutes here and just get a couple more questions. And this is a um, this is a comment, Jeb, but I want to actually answer something. So the same same viewer here says, "Here's the thing with the VA loan; it's super hard to go over the asking price due to having an appraisal." All loans are going to have an appraisal. The VA loan has the most flexible appraisal of all of them. If the appraiser wants to bring it in low, they can't deliver you a low appraisal. They have to invoke what's called Tidewater. They have to let everyone know in the process, hey, I'm not seeing the value. You have a couple days to get me all of the data you have that shows why this home is worth that. If they continue to bring it in low, we can then go back to the VA for a reconsideration of value and tell them why you want this house, why you think it is worth that. So in your situation, we're talking about not bidding over ask or, or outbidding other buyers. The asking price, the starting price of being asked for a home is not a determinant of what it will appraise for. So the appraised value is largely going to be determined by other homes selling in the area. Do we have comps to support it? And you have literally, with a VA loan, the most flexible loan in terms of getting that value. But you may be correct that other types of loan programs, someone can waive the appraisal. They don't get to waive the appraisal. They get to waive the appraisal contingency. You're putting 50% down on a conventional. You say, I don't care what it appraises for. But there's a big, big misconception with VA that the financing or the appraisal process is more difficult than other loans. It's absolutely the best. All right, Josh, I'm going to put up something here on the screen just so people can see the it. Pictures, pictures of your hernia? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give you an inside look. Um, now, uh, there's a couple of things that are new on the screen that if you see them at the moment, one is my name under me, um, which isn't normally there, but if you're on this channel, you know that. But if you type in that handle, you can follow me on Instagram and other places. Josh's handle there will get you to his YouTube channel here on YouTube. Um, and this right here will get you to the Educated Home Buyer podcast channel. That's where, again, take a deep dive into specific topics around educating you on real estate. We've talked about everything. Yesterday's video is really, really good. Uh, it covers, you know, the idea of something having to change in order to see a decline in prices, to see better interest rates, to see all of the things that people are talking about. It's covered there. So go over there, watch the video, check it out, subscribe to the channel. We would be grateful at the bottom of this is a link scrolling across the bottom. If you need a realtor, mortgage broker, anywhere in the country, that link will get you to one. Um, Josh, what am I missing here? What am I missing that we should um, that we should mention? I think you've covered it. Um, if you're watching, if you watch this on the replay, let us know what you think about the the new format trying obviously to keep it more action-packed to keep the questions moving forward so 
Hopefully the 15, 20 minutes of uh, slides and facts and figures at the beginning will give you guys time to filter in, get your questions queued up, um, and we can keep it moving forward and keep it informative and entertaining for you guys. No, that's it. I mean, we really want to keep it short, concise, to the point, to benefit you guys, um, and, you know, again, provide education because ultimately that's why we are here. So um, if you haven't done so already, hit the like. Hit the thumbs up, um, subscribe to my channel if you haven't done so already. Uh, but this will be trend. Uh, this will actually be put on the podcast on Friday, uh, so you'll be able to see it or listen to it there if you want to listen to it. Um, but we'll be back next Wednesday for our second one-hour episode. Uh, but until then, adios and vaya con dios. Thanks for listening to the Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.